0: Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning. Uh, My name is Philip Munoz. I'm a uh, professor here in political science, and I uh, direct the Constitutional Studies Program, and it's my pleasure to welcome uh, you to this morning's lecture. Uh, And welcome to those watching online as well. Um, I want to thank especially Professor Barber uh, for sharing his class with us. Uh, Professor Barber is teaching a class on gay rights in the Constitution. And one of the things we try to do with our lectures is to supplement the uh, course offerings here to bring in outside speakers to to speak to courses uh, directly. So thank you to Professor Barber uh, for sharing uh, your class uh, with us. Um, I want to extend my thanks to Professor Koppelman before he's introduced. We had a seminar this morning with faculty and graduate students, and it was just really a wonderful uh, uh, interchange of ideas. uh, And uh, it's rare that a faculty member will be so open and generous with their ideas, uh, both to to present their ideas but to receive criticisms as well. So I thought it went very well. So thank you very much uh, for making yourself available to us. We have a tradition here at the program, uh, which is we... Uh, invite our undergraduate student fellows to introduce our speakers. Uh, for those undergraduates here, uh, we're going to be calling for applications for the student fellowship program. Uh, we call them our Tocqueville fellows. They uh, meet with our speakers, they introduce our speakers, they help uh, decide the topics uh, and speakers we're inviting. So, any undergraduates, if you're interested in, in the program, please talk to me or Soren Hansen in the back and Jen Smith, who's floating around as well. Uh, Let me take this opportunity as well as to thank them. It's been quite a semester for us uh, So thank you Soren and thank you Jen uh, for everything you've done to make this uh, All work as I mentioned one of our undergraduate fellows Zach the par is going to introduce our speaker Uh, Zach is a political science and global affairs uh, major uh, Sophomore uh, and a Tocqueville fellow Zach
1: Good morning. Uh, Andrew Koppelman is the John Paul Stevens Professor of Law and Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University, where he focuses on issues related to conflicts of law, constitutional law, the First Amendment, law, and religion. In 2005, he received the Walder Award for Religious Excellence. He has published over 100 articles and a couple of books, with his most recent books being The Tough Luck Constitution and the Assault on Healthcare Reform and Defending American Religious Neutrality. Today, he will be speaking on the topic, The Unnecessary Conflict Between Gay Rights and Religious Liberty. Please join me in giving Professor Koppelman a warm welcome.
2: Should religious people who conscientiously object to facilitating same-sex weddings and who therefore decline to provide cakes, photography, or other services be exempted from anti-discrimination laws? This issue has taken on an importance that's far beyond the tiny number of wedding vendors who've made such claims. Each side's position has become more unyielding. The most sophisticated scholars are as rigid as the politicians and the partisan commentators. They don't agree on much, but they do all agree that their disagreement concerns a matter of deep principle. Religious liberty and non-discrimination are each understood as moral absolutes. Compromised is perceived as an existential threat. Both sides feel victimized. Gay rights advocates fear that exempting even a few religious dissenters would unleash a devastating wave of discrimination. Can my volume go down a little bit? I think that I'm a little too loud. Okay, I'm hearing an echo. Uh, Conservative Christians. are afraid that the law is going to treat them like racists and drive them to the margins of American society. I want to argue today that both sides are mistaken. This isn't a matter of principle. Uh, Each side is invoking interests of a kind that can and should be balanced against others. Principles are a distraction, which make each side's claims seem more uncompromisable than they are. This controversy has been a disaster for the left, which is where I situate myself. Uh, By pushing conservative Christians away from the Democrats, it helped to elect Trump. If Hillary Clinton had received Barack Obama's 2012 percentage of the white evangelical vote in Michigan and Florida, she'd be president. Trump has been a disaster for the right. The Republican Party once championed responsible conservatism. It now stands for xenophobia, protectionism, isolationism, religious bigotry, kleptocracy, and racism. And that's a transformation that's likely to survive his presidency. And that's been a disaster for American Christianity. The uncritical embrace of Trump by so many prominent religious leaders has persuaded many Americans, especially the young, that religion is a hypocritical sham. Many on each side think that their counterparts are evil and motivated by irrational hatred, either hatred of gay people or hatred of conservative Christians. Uh, That's not only dangerous and false. It's profoundly illiberal in a free society where radical disagreement about moral fundamentals is inevitable. There are indeed extremists on both sides with repressive aspirations. and each side is reasonably frightened by the worst, sometimes the most visible representatives of the other, but most Americans would like to live in peace with their fellow citizens and they're willing to consider, and if possible, to accommodate other people's perspectives and fears. This is an issue that divides decent people who honestly hold radically differing views about what a good life requires. If the two sides have no sympathy for each other, I think that this is largely because they don't understand each other. The core of the conflict is the racism analogy, and that's what I'm going to focus on today. The idea that those who embrace traditional sexual morality are as bad as racists and deserve to be treated like racists. That idea persuades gay rights advocates that any compromise would be morally repugnant, implicitly condoning evil ideas and bigoted people. And that, in turn, persuades conservative Christians that they face an existential threat. But the analogy itself, it's very often invoked, but it hasn't gotten much careful attention. The comparison actually is a bundle of several different analogies. Some of them are sound, but taken together, they're misleading, because they lead the spectator to the wrong conclusion, that all religious conservatives are malicious, hateful people. That makes the problem unsolvable, and the traditionalists are right to feel threatened. The left, which often, prides itself on its attachment to science and rationality is marching to war under the banner of a delusion. When one says that opposition to homosexuality is like racism, one might be saying any of several different things. One might be comparing their effects. The traditional religious condemnation has hurt gay people a lot. One might be saying that uh, they're grave moral errors. But those aren't the analogies that matter. They're the stuff of ordinary disagreement. We're constantly arguing with people whose views we think are wrong and destructive. And we can try to persuade them without even getting angry. Uh, The message the analogy usually conveys is more pointed. These people are evil. They deserve to be shunned. Uh, So I'll quote a majority of the US Commission on Civil Rights. They wrote that proposals for religious accommodation uh, represent an orchestrated nationwide effort by extremists to promote bigotry cloaked in the mantle of religious freedom and our pretextual attempts to justify naked animus against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Now, there is always an irresistible charm to the idea that our adversaries, the people who are arguing with us, know that they're wrong. They're only pretending to disagree with us because they're horrible people. But, uh, and this is part of what makes the analogy misleading, that wasn't even true of many whites during the Jim Crow era. Many of them blindly accepted the poppycock that they'd been taught and this kind of demonization is unfair to the millions of Americans today who hold conservative views about sexuality. The labeling of their views as pretextual seems to rely on the idea that no one could really believe this stuff. But that notion evades the familiar problem of religious diversity. Now I've been a gay rights advocate for more than 30 years. My student note in 1988 argued that discrimination against gay people is sex discrimination and should be illegal for that reason. And I've just made the same argument in an amicus brief in the current Supreme Court term. I've worked very hard to create a regime in which it's safe to be gay. And I would also like that regime to one that's safe for religious dissenters. Uh, So I happen to believe, I'm just going to report to you that uh, there's no moral difference between homosexual and heterosexual sex. The belief that one is inferior to the other is wrong and has been the course of enormous harm. It'd be a better world if no one believed that. Uh, And if you disagree, oh, and I've noticed that I'm at Notre Dame, (laughs) which is the epicenter of a worldview that's radically different from mine, uh, and I'm grateful that you're listening to me. Uh, I'm not going to try to convince you I've engaged in, with that uh, argument in earlier writings, but I will explain why my opinions about sexuality and morality don't entail that I have to treat you as odious or deny you exemption from anti-discrimination law. Now, in earlier work, what I've proposed, uh, and I'm proposing, I've got a, what you're hearing is a piece of a book that will be out this spring uh, on the gay rights, religious liberty conflict from Oxford. Uh, I've argued one possible compromise is to exempt only people who post warnings about their religious exemptions so that customers don't have the personal experience of being turned away. The harm of discrimination that's most salient here is the wounding experience of personal rejection or its anticipation, which can be a source of chronic stress during what one reasonably expects to be the happy occasion of planning one's wedding. And that can be avoided if the vendors are required as a precondition for exemption to make their objections clear to the public in advance. Now that kind of announcement has obvious commercial costs, and so they're likely to be rare and come only from those with the most intense religious compunctions, a very small number of dissenters who one can easily avoid meeting are are unlikely to undermine the equality of gay people. But a common response that I get from my friends on the left, uh, who I think are probably starting to lose patience with me now, uh, is that uh, they say, well... These people are as bad as racists. They shouldn't be accommodated. Uh, You wouldn't have accommodated people from the Civil Rights Act of 1964, would you? Uh, And so even if you could accommodate them without defeating the purposes of anti-discrimination law, it would be wrong to do so. It would give those people too much respect. So what I'm going to do today is uh, try to act like an analytic philosopher and analyze the analogy and disaggregate its claims, which are typically bundled together. So what does it mean to say that objections to homosexual conduct are the moral equivalent of racism? I count several different analogies packed into this claim. So uh, let's go through them. Uh, One just focuses on effects. Sometimes there are patterns of mistreatment, uh, and when those patterns exist, they can be destructive whatever the discriminator's motives are, even if the discriminator is being perfectly rational. So if you are in a society where racial segregation has caused black people to get worse educations than white people, employers might be perfectly rational in discriminating. Uh, but those individually rational decisions would then uh, perpetuate a self-reinforcing pattern of <laughs> subordination, and that's a good reason to prohibit them. Uh, and uh, there have been quite bad cumulative effects on gay people uh, arising out of the view that gay sexuality is inferior in various ways. Uh, and uh, they've suffered risk mistreatment ranging from employment discrimination to homicidal violence. But that doesn't tell us anything about whether religious accommodations can be permitted without defeating the purposes of anti-discrimination laws. Aggregate effects aren't going to change much if a few people are allowed to discriminate. And we haven't seen an awful lot of these claims. Uh, They've had maybe a dozen of them uh, that have made it into the news in a country of over 300 million people. Uh, A second analogy, is that uh, both treat people unjustly on the basis of irrelevant characteristics. Now that argument is parasitic on the premise that there's no valid reason for treating gay sex as inferior to heterosexual sex. Uh, But of course, those who hold traditional views of sexuality will think that there are such reasons. Uh, As Justice Alito has explained in the Windsor case, uh, they believe marriage is essentially the solemnizing of a comprehensive, exclusive, permanent union that is intrinsically ordered to producing new life, even if it does not always do so. Well, whatever the merits of that notion, it's not about gay people. It's focused on the value of a certain kind of heterosexual union, and gay people are a side issue. Uh, the, uh, I think these ideas are obviously wrong, but that's what I think about an enormous range of beliefs, not just religious beliefs. Uh, many, I think, Here's a proposition that I think most Americans agree with. There are some religious beliefs that are contemptible falsehoods. Everybody thinks that. We just don't agree on which ones. Uh, This isn't anything new. This is the chronic condition of the United States, which is probably the most religiously diverse country in the history of the world. And the way we've coped with this diversity is to treat religion understood at a very abstract level, abstracting beyond all doctrinal differences, as a good thing and to accommodate it where we can. Uh, we address the chronic human problems of suffering and guilt and death uh, in many different ways, and we treat one another's resolutions of those problems with respect, even if they make no sense to us, or even if we think they're mistaken. Uh, An accommodation, religious accommodation from generally applicable laws, which we've been doing since before the framing, when we accommodated uh, Quakers from the military draft, uh, it always involves minorities. Uh, which, in the context of religion, means people who believe things that we in the majority regard as false. If they were a majority, then the legal obligation that they question wouldn't be there in the first place. Catholic countries don't ban sacramental wine. uh, So even if you think that the view is false, that doesn't defeat the case for exemptions. It's usually the case with exemptions. So then... Here's the analogy that's doing most of the work that I'm going to spend most of my time on. Racists are evil, and that it's an argument that then gets transplanted in this context. In 2015, Indiana enacted a religious freedom law that arguably would have exempted wedding vendors from anti-discrimination laws. It's not clear how important this was in its actual operation. Almost nobody noticed that, except for 11 municipalities, Indiana doesn't have an anti-discrimination law to exempt people from. Uh, and during the controversy that ensued, which ultimately left, led to the partial repeal of the statute, the New York Times ran an editorial. I'll read you its title. In Indiana, Using Religion as a Cover for Bigotry. The implicit assumption is that the objection to facilitating same-sex marriage isn't really religion at all, that it's a cover for something else, something nasty. And that same view underlay the Civil Rights Commission declaration that religious objections are pretextual. Uh, or the declaration of the commissioner in Masterpiece Cake Shop Free Colorado, the one wedding vendor case that the Supreme Court has heard, uh, That to me, it's one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to use their religion to hurt others. The phrase using religion implies that religion is a phony excuse. You use a tool. You're not used by it. Uh, And the way that the uh, narrative then goes, not only don't such people deserve accommodation, we don't mind if they are unhappy. Their unhappiness even gives us some satisfaction. It serves them right. Uh, Either they have it coming, or their pain could teach them to change their ways, or both. Uh, The word bigot elicits an image of pure viciousness, sometimes hiding behind a mask of piety, but the piety is only a mask. What's wrong with this narrative is that it's just not true, it's poppycock. Uh, In the most prominent cases, conservative Christians have been willing to endure huge fines, sometimes the destruction of their businesses, rather than facilitate what they believe to be sinful conduct. In some of the cases, they'd previously been friendly with the gay complainants. They're idealists. Now, that doesn't mean, if we're going to be precise here, that they're different from racists. There are racist idealists, too. Lester Maddox... uh, Thought that segregation was mandated by the Bible and he closed his restaurant in 1965 rather than integrate it. After his resistance made him famous he was elected governor of Georgia. Uh, the picture of racists as hate-filled demons isn't fair to them and it also fu- supports a false distinction. Uh, both views have been held by many otherwise decent people. It uh, doesn't justify the views but regarding the people themselves as vicious is its own form of vicious stereotype. And it creates the opportunity for resisting the analogy that I think doesn't quite work. So Ryan Anderson argues that opposition to interracial marriage, I'll quote, is an outlier from the historic understanding and practice of marriage founded not on decent and honorable premises, but on bigotry. So he infers that the racists had bad intentions. Given the irrelevance of race to almost any transaction and given the widespread and flagrant racial animus of the time, no claims of benign motives are plausible. Uh, Well, this is bad history. Uh, Many whites in the Deep South accepted racial segregation because that was the natural and obvious order of things, the world they grew up in, and they sincerely believed in interpretation of Christianity that mandated it. Their daily experience taught them that black people were happy with their lot, The black people had learned to act contented whenever whites were watching because otherwise you placed yourself in mortal danger. Uh, Racism, when it's conscious and pursued as a project, has a different face today because it no longer consists of a careless acceptance of the status quo. You have to have a positive desire to lower the status of black people, and that desire is almost always accompanied by resentment and hatred. And that's conspicuous in the contemporary alt-right movement, it was not ever thus. Racial segregation rested on an elaborate racist theology. The Bible, uh, I'm going to quote from the King James Version because this theology was overwhelmingly Protestant, you'll be happy to learn. Uh, (laughs) God separated the sons of Adam and hath determined the bounds of their habitation. Uh, this is from Deuteronomy and Acts. Uh, and from these and other verses, the racist theologians inferred that it wasn't God's intention that the races mix. Any effort to end racial distinctions defied God's plan and was evil, and the most extreme form of that evil was interracial marriage. Uh, I can give you lots of examples. Uh, so. Uh, One prominent Virginia minister, James Burke, said, when man disregards the boundary lines God himself has drawn, man assumes a prerogative that belongs to God alone. Uh, The sermon was reprinted in many newspapers, circulated as a pamphlet. Uh, The theology of separate races was a kind of cultural religion that was pervasive in the Deep South for 100 years after the Civil War. Now, you might be inclined to dismiss the theology as a rationalization for an unjust social structure. And of course, these beliefs wouldn't have been adopted if the underlying racial hierarchies hadn't already been in place. But most religion has a legitimating function that bestows an ultimate ontological status on always precarious social institutions. Uh, That's not to say that any particular religious belief is true or false. It's just about the sociology of religion. the fact that a religious belief has social causes doesn't necessarily mean that it's false or insincere. All beliefs have social causes. So the struggle over racial equality was a struggle of theologies, each often sincerely held. Martin Luther King's triumph was to reshape Christianity so that no one, almost no one any longer takes its racist form seriously. Now, you can plunge into theological controversy and say there's a crucial disanalogy, that one belief is sounder than the other, that there actually is a good biblical basis for denouncing homosexual marriage and homosexual sex. Uh, But if the Establishment Clause means anything, it means that the state's not to adjudicate those controversies. If the state started rejecting claims because of their bad theological bona fides, that would be the end of religious freedom. You also might regard this racist biblical exegesis as so daffy that no one could possibly believe it. But that's not only true of racist theology. It is the problem of religious diversity. Nothing is more manifestly implausible than other people's religions. The recognition that many racists were sincere believers disrupts settled narratives on both the right and the left. It makes it impossible for conservatives to say that because we're nice people, it follows that we're nothing at all like the racists. It makes it impossible for gay rights advocates to say that, well, because you believe horrible things, that proves that you're horrible people. This controversy is an example of deeper currents in political polarization. Increasingly, and across multiple political issues, honest disagreement is taken as evidence of bad character, and that tendency is particularly salient here. Racism is often regarded as if it were uniquely evil, sharply distinct from all of the other misperceptions that lead people to mistreat each other. But there's nothing unique here. Our understandings of other human beings are routinely delusional. We are constantly relying on stereotypes and snap judgments, and we often do this sincerely, trying our best to do what's right. Uh, Iris Murdoch argues that the chief enemy of morality is personal fantasy, the tissue of self-aggrandizing and consoling wishes and dreams which prevent one from seeing what there is outside one. Liberalism is the enemy of this kind of fantasy. It demands sympathetic identification with the other, as in its own way does liberalism's Siamese twin capitalism, which requires that one know one's market. Uh, The gay rights movement's principal enemy is the once ubiquitous bizarre fantasy of what gay people must be like. The polarization of American politics rests on similar abuses of fantasy. The, uh, so sometimes our misjudgments are reprehensible. They sometimes arise out of culpable self-indulgence and intellectual laziness. We've got an obligation to overcome that. Uh, Some racists accept their their culture's racism so unquestionably that it's not clear what their culpability is. There are other people who guiltily weave an elaborate tissue of self-justifying rationalization. Some are motivated by pure malignity. Uh, similarly with heterosexism, it's hard for people who don't know us to tell whether we're wicked or culpably negligent or invincibly ignorant. We often don't see the truth about ourselves. There's been a lot of philosophical prob- work on the problem of evil, and it isn't noticed often enough that its close sibling is the problem of stupid. Uh, and it can be hard to tell them apart. So. Disagreement, it just doesn't tell you anything about the moral character of the people involved. Well, another analogy is, uh, and this is also doing, I think, quite a lot of the work, is these people are disgusting. It's not an argument so much as a visceral reason for denying claims. It regards certain views as so repellent as to be the object of a kind of taboo. Well, this kind of taboo has developed for racism. It wasn't always the case that racist was a derogatory epithet. The ethic was deliberately constructed and it's done a lot of good. Pervasive prejudice has to be combated with equally strong cultural forces. Liberals uh, tend to be uncomfortable with the invocation of that type of primitive impulse. They seem to be an ineradicable part of humanity's moral vocabulary. Ideas of purity had been powerfully deployed on behalf of racism. The left captured purity and turned it against the enemy. So racism itself has come to be regarded as contaminating and a similar cultural reversal has been directed at homophobia. As with racism, the stigmatization of gay people is so deeply rooted in American culture that there's value in not probably necessary to rely on this kind of counter-taboo in order to respond to it. And that's why it's such a conversation stopper to ask, well, would you accept religiously-based discrimination against interracial couples? The reaction's instantaneous. Yuck. That would be gross even if there were only one discriminator in the world. Uh, But disgust is an unreliable basis for political action. Uh, The left's sense of contamination goes beyond discrimination. Uh, It extends even to people who comply with the law if they think the wrong thoughts. A Canadian jeweler willingly custom made a pair of engagement rings for same-sex couples. And when the couple discovered that the jeweler opposed same-sex marriage, they demanded their money back. And after being inundated with hateful emails, phone calls, and threats, the jeweler gave in. Uh, It appears that he would be wrong whether he discriminated or not. This kind of crude Banachianism has its political uses. But when it reaches the point that large numbers of citizens look at one another as irredeemable fiends, it's gotten out of hand. We're going to have to live together. So there are, the analogy is, in some ways sound, it's harmful, it's based on error, there are some bad motives. Uh, The analogy that labels these people evil, not even universally true with respect to racism, but there are other important uh, disanalogies. One has to do with whether the accommodation of anyone will open the floodgates to too many claims. In 1964, when the Civil Rights Act was enacted, religious objections to integration were so common among Southern whites that any accommodation would have inevitably defeated the aims of the statute. Everybody would have pounced on the opportunity. So that's why these claims had to be rejected. And racism remains a powerful force in American culture and politics. It's gotten stronger lately. Uh, A zero tolerance response is appropriate. Uh, Now, it's sometimes thought there's a principled issue here. Uh, If objections to same-sex marriage are accommodated, you logically must also accept objections to same-sex marriage. But the cases aren't the same. The state interest is stronger in the interracial marriage case. And more generally, it's not necessary for the tension between gay rights and rights of religious liberty to be addressed at the level of high principle. The principles here, religious liberty and non-discrimination may seem irreconcilable, but they are themselves parasitic on interests. The way to think clearly about the conflict is to look past the principles at the underlying interests. Discrimination harms its victims' urgent interest in equal treatment in public spaces. Religious liberty protects what people regard as their deepest concerns. The legal rights in question are tools for promoting protecting those interests. In some ways, law school uh, legal education can be misleading here. Uh, what lawyers are taught, what I teach my law students, uh, is uh, the way to deal with conflict resolution is you you do this. You come up with an abstract principle, uh, a principle that will cover all future cases between now and the heat death of the universe, and and which incidentally, you can put this in a footnote, entail that my client wins. But that's not the only way to think about conflict. Sometimes the right thing to do isn't to follow a principle but to discern the interests at stake and cobble together a solution in where everybody is okay. Uh, Ethics is not only about principles. There is a tradition in moral philosophy, going back to Aristotle, that holds that a good person doesn't necessarily rely on any abstract ideal, but makes sound judgments about the right thing to do in particular situations. Sometimes principles are overbroad generalizations from experience and distract us from the moral imperatives of the situation at hand. Arguments about the gay rights religious liberty conflict often talk past each other because they focus on one of the interests in question and ignore the other. The principles are in irresolvable tension, but the interests aren't. There are ways to ensure that all the relevant interests are accommodated. Uh, This might require some modification of the principles, but what ultimately matters is not the principles. It's the people. We only care about the principles because we care about the people. Now, I've argued that I don't think there will be a flood of exemption claims, even in the parts of the country that are most opposed to same-sex marriage. Uh, opinion about same-sex marriage is shifting, even in the parts of the country most hostile to it. You look at the survey data from Mississippi or Alabama, and it is shifting rapidly, particularly among younger people. Uh, but when always in a religious accommodation case, uh, you. Know, you're asking this question. Uh, whenever religious accommodations are proposed, you always have to ask, will there be such a flood of claims that the law's purposes will be thwarted? Uh, so when the Volstadt Act prohibiting alcoholic beverages was passed in 1919, uh, there was an exemption for the Catholic mass. And I suppose someone could have asked at the time, is this the end of Protestant America? Because, of course, everybody's going to instantly convert to Catholicism so they can drink. (laughs) Didn't happen. Uh, So uh, you're always making this kind of uh, claim, but notice how this. Conversation has shifted. We're now making a prudential calculation about consequences. We're no longer talking about evil people or contamination uh, by bigotry. We haven't ruled out accommodations by, uh, as a matter of principle. We're having the conversation we ought to be having. It is a truth universally acknowledged that there could not and should not have been religious exemptions from the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And from this, uh, one might infer, many do infer, that those who refuse to facilitate same-sex marriages aren't even entitled to the mild, defeasible presumption of accommodation that America has often extended to conscientious objectors. And you might also infer, as in 1964, the stakes are high enough to justify a state effort to stamp out the subculture that embraces these hateful views. But this misunderstands 1964. Uh, you don't have to even think that heterosexism is less bad than racism in order to understand our, the uniqueness of our situation then. America has a long history of accommodating religious dissenters. And as a general matter, the law shouldn't strive to stamp out any subculture and make its members outcasts. Racism has become so pervasive and destructive, has been so pervasive and destructive, In 1964, those two principles were appropriately overridden. The civil rights struggle demanded coercive cultural reconstruction, especially not only in the states of the former Confederacy. Uh, The question isn't simply whether people are acting on the basis of repugnant ideas. There are a lot of repugnant ideas around. It's whether there should be cultural war. And that question, like any decision to go to war, depends on prudential assessment of likely consequences. In the case of race, there's been progress, but the war isn't over. Uh, In the case of sexual orientation, war is unnecessary and unlikely to improve matters. The racism of the pre-1964 South, it's a unique problem here. It was pervasively dependent on violence and the threat of violence. Whereas in the wedding vendor cases, the wedding vendors just want to be left alone. There is, my friends on the left uh, immediately point out, quite a lot of violence against gay people. But it is not being perpetrated by Jack Phillips or L. Stuntsman. You've got the wrong target here if violence is your concern. And the wedding vendors might also be able to be accommodated in various ways without defeating the point of the law. And that wasn't possible in 1964 because there were too many people who take advantage of the exemption. There are lots of ways to compromise. You could have an exemption for very small businesses or for religiously oriented businesses or expressive enterprises like photographers. Uh, Vendors could be required to make their objections uh, clear to the public in advance, that's my suggestion. Uh, The specifics would have to be negotiated. I don't think any of these would create a flood of claims. We can argue about the details, but the racism analogy shuts down even the possibility of having that conversation. In the relatively bland religious environment we happen, I think we've forgotten what real religious diversity is. It was once widely agreed that there was only one true path to salvation, and other people's beliefs were leading them to hell. Uh, toleration became the rule not because people stopped believing this, but because they became persuaded that the coercive use of state power wouldn't help. State religions likely to become corrupted religion. Religious liberty is fundamentally about tolerating ideas we regard as odious both gay people and religious conservatives want space and society to live out their beliefs, values, and identities. Each side's most basic commitments entail that the other is in error about moral fundamentals, that the other's way of life is predicated on that error and ought not to exist. And that was also true of the religious differences that begot the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment. Uh, The United States uh, is a long-standing counterexample to Rousseau's dictum that it is impossible to live in peace with people whom one believes to be damned. There's also, amid this conflict, been a distorted sense of priorities. And uh, here, I'll offer you an argument that I've been pushing quite hard on my friends in the gay rights movement about what the gay rights movement ought to want now. The conversation has focused almost exclusively on discrimination, but the most pressing gay rights issue today is the terrifying environment that many gay teenagers face. Gay adolescents are disproportionately likely to be homeless, usually because their parents abuse or evict them for being gay. They reveal their sexuality to their families at younger ages than they once did because they've picked that up from the culture. they, uh, and those families are very often completely unequipped to understand them. At least 20% of homeless youth identify as LGBT, even though that group is 3-5% to 5% of the general population. On the most conservative estimate, there are more than 100,000 of them in the U.S. They're vulnerable to depression and substance abuse and crime. They have no marketable skills. They're likely to engage in survival sex, where they exchange sex for money, food, clothing, shelter, or drugs. Most youth homelessness, gay or straight, is a consequence of family conflict. Parents need to be persuaded to change their treatment of gay children. They need to stop driving them away from their homes. There are movements within conservative Christianity to support LGBT youth and their families without abandoning their traditional sexual ethics. That's too much to ask. they get almost no support from gay rights organizations. Opportunities for collaboration are being neglected. The gay rights organizations understand a lot more about these kids than the conservative churches do. They need to be talking to each other. Both have an interest in making those communities better places for gay youth to live. The young people themselves often are looking for ways to reconcile their sexuality with their religious beliefs. The conservative Christians, their leaders, understand that there are patterns of behavior that are turning children in their commu- from their communities into homeless prostitutes, and that's not what Christianity requires. On the rare occasions that staff from conservative religious schools have met with LGBT advocates to learn one another's perspectives and concerns, the schools have responded by reaching out more actively to their LGBT students and uh, the Council on Christian Colleges and Universities has sponsored programming on how member schools can be more supportive of LGB students without unqualified acceptance of gay sexuality. You can do this without budging at all on the underlying moral principles, which I understand are are fundamental and not compromisable. But before we can collaborate, we have to stop fighting. Racism, I'll say it again, isn't uniquely evil. It's part of the enormous variety of forms of self-indulgent fantasy that give people permission to mistreat each other. We need to educate one another about our errors, but we can't begin to do that if we regard one another as too loathsome or threatening to talk to. I would like very much to banish to the margins of society the notion that homosexual sex is inferior to heterosexual sex. I'd like gay people to suffer no disadvantage or humiliation whatsoever because there are other people who believe that, and again, with acknowledgement to those of you in the room who do believe that. Uh, But I also believe that the margins of society should be a safe place where those who don't conform to majoritarian norms and whose views I regard as disastrously misguided can live their lives in peace and security. I take as my model here, the boxer Sugar Ray Robinson. My father, uh, George Koppelman, grew up near New York City and he told me this story. A friend of his entered uh, the city's amateur boxing competition, the Golden Gloves, and he unexpectedly found himself matched against this other young man. Uh, Robinson's regarded by many sports writers as the greatest fighter of all time. He held the welterweight title from 1946 to 1951, the middleweight championship five times between 1951 and 1960, and during his amateur career uh, in which he won the Golden Gloves titles in 1939 and 1940, he was undefeated 85 to 0 with 69 knockouts, 40 of them in the first round. Imagine yourself facing that on the other side of the ring. Uh, My father's friend, I don't remember his name, uh, was terrified and evidently it showed. And as they touched gloves before the fight began, Robinson leaned toward him and he whispered the following in his ear. Don't worry, I'm not gonna hurt you, I'm just gonna win. He easily beat him on points and he never hit him very hard. The gay gay rights movement should emulate Robinson. We shouldn't wanna hurt them, we just wanna win. Thank you. I would love to take questions.
0: As is our tradition, we'll uh, invite an undergraduate student, professor, uh, perhaps a student from uh, Professor Barber's class, to ask the first question. Any undergraduates with a question? Sure. The microphone is for the recording. Uh, and go ahead, stand up and um, uh, tell us who you are. Thank
3: you.
4: Hi. Oh, yeah. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for coming, Professor. Uh, my name is Kendrick Peterson. I'm a senior here at the University of Notre Dame. I'm also the head of PRISM-ND, which is the LGBTQ organization at this university. So a lot of times when we're talking about queer advocacy and of course, Community in general, we say LGBTQ but oftentimes the movement separates itself between LGB and T, considering that they're both very, very different communities. Can mm-hmm. you speak some more, or speak a little bit more about that kind of like separation? How you feel trans identities necessarily don't kind of go into LGB uh, identities, or how those perceptions should be perceived from religious Catholics, for
2: example, at this institution? Um. So uh, I am. Uh, so. I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a theologian. I'm a lawyer, uh, and uh, you know one of the things that uh, the lawyers have been useful for is the crafting of rights that create a world in which it is safe to live in society, even if you are deeply unintelligible to the, your neighbors. So I mean the uh, the an issue that gay people and trans people have had in common is that their physical safety has been in question. It is a much more pressing problem today for trans people than it is for gay people. Uh, And so uh, I think that uh, that's the fundamental question. I don't say very much about transgender discrimination in uh, this book. I uh, expect that the objection to same-sex marriage will also eventually present us with cases spilling over into marriages by trans people. Uh, I guess there's such an enormous range of legal issues involving trans people that I'd have to have something more specific to, I'd have to have a more specific question before I could get into more detailed, but uh, the overall aim is that there is uh, it's possible to live safely in the society, which in the case of trans people means at a minimum that there has to be a toilet that you can safely go into. And uh, I think that it's astonishing that that has not been more fully appreciated on the right. Uh,
0: Another question from a student, and then we'll open it up to folks.
5: Please,
6: ma'am. Hi, I'm Grace. I'm a sophomore. Um, My main question was, you address a lot of social and individual relationships between um, people of religious groups and their reactions to LGBTQ plus members. But what's more more your opinion on what groups as a whole should do to make... I know, like, for example, Catholicism has a deep-rooted traditional value necessarily against um, gay marriage. So at what point do we make it not an individual and societal thing and get groups with such deep and entrenched traditions to change those? Um,
2: What liberalism promises uh, and what religious uh, freedom promises is not the end of conflict. It is that conflict will be conducted through nonviolent means. So uh, I am, uh, I mean, you know, as I said, you know, uh, I think that I understand uh, the teachings of the Catholic Church about uh, the question of sexual ethics and specifically of homosexual sex. I think that it's wrong. Uh, I uh, and I, but I don't see what we can do about it except try to understand one another's views and uh, try to explain why we're not persuaded. I'm unusually lucky in this respect. Uh, before I was at Northwestern, I was at Princeton, and uh, you know, the uh, the view of the church on this was explained to me with incredible patience by Robbie George over a period of months. And I wrote him a memo saying, I, I, I've read Germain Grisset. Here's where it, I think it doesn't work. Uh, and he said, well, we would, this is wrong. We would never put it that way. And I ended up publishing it in the only audience that cared what, about uh, engagement with this debate, the American Journal of Jurisprudence, published out of Notre Dame. Uh, and uh, so uh, I think that that's how you disagree. You just you try to persuade other people that you are wrong. Uh, yeah, Like the rest of the human race, I'm astonished that anybody disagrees with me about anything. But uh, it's manifestly the case. I don't know what else we can do except keep talking.
0: I think Professor Hall had a question.
4: Thank you so much, Professor Koppelman. Uh, we really appreciate you being here, and I appreciate all of your work. Uh, your writings are fantastic. I was really interested in hearing about the your the analogy between the wedding vendor who wants to refuse service to the homosexual couple versus the hypothetical wedding vendor who wants to refuse service to the interracial couple mm-hmm. but A substantial portion of your argument wasn't saying that those analogies are different, you were actually saying they were similar. So for instance, uh, maybe not all racists in 1964 were disgusting, maybe not all homophobic people today are disgusting. So let's set aside all the ways in which these analogies are similar. I'm still looking for where are they different? And I heard two arguments from you about how they might be different. One, I heard you briefly mention that the state's interest was stronger in the race versus mm-hmm. I don't understand why. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sec- the second thing I heard was you focused a lot on just the practical uh, frequency of mm-hmm. these events. So maybe in 1964, a huge mm-hmm. swath of the population would have claimed a religious exemption. Mm-hmm. Today, they wouldn't have. And so my question is, first of all, does that mean that today wedding vendors who want to refuse uh, service to interracial couples should be granted that a- accommodation because there aren't that many of them probably left today who would mm-hmm. make that fight openly. And then, secondly, if it's if if your argument hinges on the likely frequency of these claims, mm-hmm. would it matter if if I argue well if we grant an exemption for wedding vendors, mm-hmm. what other exemptions might be granted? For instance. Uh, maybe if I run an apartment building, I don't want to rent an apartment to a gay couple because that's facilitating their sexual relationship Mm -hmm. in much the same way that the wedding vendor is facilitating the vendor. Do I not have to... A contractor doesn't have to build their house. Mm -hmm. A restauranteur doesn't have to let them have Valentine's Day dinner. I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. Um, So my first question is, does it really hinge on frequency? And Mm -hmm. two, then does that mean you... uh, Where do those arguments go?
2: Well, it's, it's a great question. I think it's not only about frequency. So I think that uh, one of the aims of anti-discrimination law is uh, with, uh, as against racial discrimination is uh, an ongoing cultural war to stigmatize racism as beyond the pale. And that, I think, today is uh, what is doing the work with uh, discrimination against interracial couples, which is vanishingly rare today, but it still turns up from time to time. And uh, when it turns up, it elicits this ritual of universal loathing, which I think does some good, but I mean, you know, racism is still very much with us. Uh, on the question of frequency more general, so there it's not just about, uh, well, you know, we can accommodate if there are only a few such people. As I've said I don't think the cultural war is what is appropriate here uh, because if the question is trying to uh, change the ethic that is out there I think the ethic that regards uh, homosexual sex as inferior to heterosexual sex is in deep deep trouble and I don't see rescue coming from any place anytime soon. Uh, The uh, whereas you know, racism seems to me to be a good deal more potent. In general, in religious accommodation cases, we are always asking this question, are we opening the floodgates? And I think it's just a predictive question, are we opening the floodgates? So in each one of these cases, uh, where uh, there's been a tradition of accommodating religious dissenters, and so when, in any one of these contexts, when they come forward, I would ask, well, Can we accommodate them without defeating the purposes of the law? And I want to explore that question. It may be different in different contexts. So
4: you might accommodate the vendor who
2: wants to refuse interracial racism. No, I said at the very beginning, the first half of my answer was that racism is different. And it's different. Because because there is an ongoing uh, potent racist current in America. It has uh, become a, a homophobia. Uh, homophobia is in serious retreat. You look at the survey data. Uh, at this point, the uh, support for discriminate protection of gay people against employment discrimination, according to the most recent survey that I saw, is north of 90%. percent
5: Uh same for
2: uh, support for prohibiting racism? Uh, I, you know here we may just have to disagree about what American culture is like. Uh, there has been uh, a pretty massive resurgence of open racism and violent racism in the United States in lots of places in the United States. You know, so uh, you know, the, uh, so I just think you know i mean, the same way that I think that a bunch of clowns marching in uniform in Skokie is not really the same thing as Hitler's invasion of Poland. Uh, I think that uh, the uh, racism today is appropriately calls forth a zero tolerance policy that I just don't think is necessary in order for my side to win on the cultural conflict about uh, the status of homosexuality. It's just my reading of the culture. you can disagree. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Some more questions. Uh, uh, Daniel here.
6: Hello, Professor Copelman. Thank you for coming to speak with us. Um, I'm currently working on an, I'm a law student. I'm currently working on an essay on religious freedom and discrimination law and Catholic adoption and foster agencies. And I, I would consider myself to be a conservative Catholic and I'm trying to make sure that I'm as cognizant of other people's mm-hmm. needs in this case. And it seems to me that on the the version that you put forward for this—that there might be some distinctions between a wedding vendor who <laughs> does not feel comfortable mm-hmm. working with a same-sex couple and a an adoption agency, due to the greater importance of adopting children in a mm-hmm. gay person's lifestyle than the need for a specific florist or a cake—and also because of the greater difficulty in adopting children. So, would you agree that there's a difference there, or would you approach it sort of in the same way?
2: I think that the adopt with the adoption question you get into questions of market power and market share. If there are lots of adoption agencies and a few of them discriminate, I think that they can be allowed to discriminate. In fact, it facilitates adoption because uh, some people are more willing to put their children up for adoption if they feel they have some control over who the child will end up with. So. Uh, so I guess my, uh, my inclination in the, uh, but, and then there are some places where there is one adoption agency that has 70% of the market share. And uh, so discrimination by that agency is a problem. But, uh, but my general inclinations are toward antitrust rather than regulation. <laughs> All right, thank you. Uh,
0: Professor Best, did you have a question? Yes.
7: Um, well, um, Professor Kaufman, thank you very much for coming. Um, uh, it's a, it's good to see a genuine liberal uh, on the left, uh, and um, I suppose I'm. There's more than my, one of me. Pardon? Yeah. Well, that's no. that's good to hear. Um, uh, I suppose I'm showing my age and in in uh, uh, also enjoying your uh, Sugar Ray Robinson uh, uh, story. Few people remember who he was. Uh, great fighter. Um, so so I want to ask a question about. Um, uh, the idea of of intersectionality as religion, uh, and of course, by intersectionality, what I mean by that is this, the confluence of racial, sexual, and class issues into a single set of political interests. Um, that you know that um, uh, is out there as a as an idea. But I want I want to uh, um, uh, I want to present the idea of it as a kind of religion. It has it has its symbols. You know, it has a flag. It has. Um, holidays, commemoration of Stonewall, Gay Pride Month, it has doctrines, the natural attraction of same sex attraction. Uh, and in tandem with these doctrines, um, uh, there are critical characterizations of LGBT beliefs um, as properly prohibited thoughts, right? So there are positive doctrines and there, there are prohibitions. Um, perhaps there are, are a set of nascent sacraments within intersectionality, uh, for example, the sacred status of abortion rights. Um, and, and then this is the particular thing, the integralist nature of its character, which is to say it seeks legal establishment for its preferred doctrines. And so the prima facie obvious American way to handle this is to say that intersection, intersectionalism is entitled to free exercise, but not establishment.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: But that doesn't seem to be a satisfactory solution to contemporary intersectionalists. Um, uh, and I think that part of that is that it may be because, um, well, they want to win, Um, and and maybe not as uh, uh, solicitously as as Mm -hmm. Ray Robinson, but uh, also in part because they don't understand their views as religious, Mm -hmm. um, which I suspect is a view with which, I'm not a lawyer, but it's a view that I suspect with which most courts would disagree, that it's Mm -hmm. religious and so it can't Mm -hmm. be considered in that way. I wonder if you, uh, what what you think about that as a...
2: Um, Well, there's uh, no question there are illiberal elements on the left. Uh, the, uh, and uh, people, if, if you, one one can use the term sacrament loosely, but uh, there are matters of deep attachment, and people have deep sacraments that come into war with one another. Uh, having lived in the same town with Chicago Cubs fans and Chicago White Sox fans, I know quite a lot about this. Uh, you know, it, it can get very bitter. Um, the fun, this goes to the more general problem of American political polarization. Uh, I think one of the fundamental problems that the United States faces today is uh, we need to construct a narrative in which half the country isn't going to feel like outcasts. And, uh, the, uh, and I think that that is a challenge for the next president. This president obviously has no interest in doing that. Uh, But uh, I think that that is the task that it's not just with respect to this issue uh, and there has been a tendency for people on both sides to be drawn to narratives in which uh, the other side are hateful demons and it's just wrong. So uh, this book is part of an effort to push back on that. As one of the uh, things that, you know, folks who are running the line that I'm running here are concerned about, we'd like to introduce an alternative to the Equality Act in Congress that would include religious accommodations. The gay rights bill that passed the House has almost no religious accommodation at all. And we'd like to push an alternative bill. There is a problem now about how do you get anybody to pay attention when everyone's focusing on impeachment. The line that I am suggesting to my friends is, you know, after a while, impeachment's going to get boring. <laughs> and Just make you not want to read the newspaper. And the news industry can't have that. So uh, a story about how people who fundamentally disagree about these fraught moral issues have managed to get together and reach a compromise about uh, this uh, has a certain man bites dog quality <laughs> that might make it onto the front page. But I think that that's more generally what we need to do. And that means pushing back on elements of both left and right.
0: OK. Let's go. I uh, get a quick question in the back here. I don't know. I think impeachment's more like pornography. You get a little bit. You want more.
1: Okay. <laughs> I won't comment on that. Uh, my name's Max. I'm a graduate student in political theory here. I'm curious, who, to, who do you think the, anti-LGBT discrimination laws should apply to it, which is to say that it, it, in sort of in the sociological picture you presented, there's less and less anti-LGBT discrimination, especially around wedding. And we not such a big problem to give a few people some exemptions because there's not that many of them and they're probably not gaining power. That right, It's not going to be the case. You're not going to be able to get married or going to have a, you know, severely limited options for getting married Uh so if that's the case, first, why do we need the anti-discrimination laws in the first place if no one's really discriminating? And second, if we do need them, who, is, who are they going to be applied to if not people who are claiming that LGBT relationships violate their religion? Which in my mind is the primary sort of case of discrimination against LGBT people, perhaps unlike race where it was one of but not the only sort of reason for discrimination.
2: Well, a lot of what uh, LGBT people put up with uh, doesn't really fit into any religious narrative. There still are quite a lot of hate crimes against gay people. And if those are animated by Christian theology, it is a radical misunderstanding of Christian theology. So uh, yeah, there uh, is a... Mean, there's fairly massive evidence of discrimination against gay people, and I, I, it seems to me that most of it has to do with violation of gender norms and not religion. Uh, that's certainly the way that I learned about anti-gay prejudice in high school. I only learned later on that there was any had anything to do with religion. So, uh, so the. Uh, And the fact that it is uh, increasingly unpopular doesn't mean that it isn't stressful and wounding and affecting uh, the opportunities of the people who are subjected to it. Uh, Open, hateful racism was already a minority view in America in 1964, but it was pretty destructive. Uh, So it seems to me that they're just different questions. And, uh, and again, by singling out the wedding vendors, I think that I am singling out a very tiny subset of the discrimination that's
0: out there. Maybe one, uh, one or two more? Uh, yeah. B- both in this row. Uh, ma'am, why don't you go first? And the microphone's right behind you.
3: Yeah, so if, if I may, I can actually enlighten a little bit about the marriage question when it comes to transgender people, it's never really been the question within the trans community because depending on the marker the the roman character on a piece of identification it's never been an issue so it's never really that's never been a legal concern explicitly and with marriage equality depending on the transgender person's sexuality it's not an issue um, you made a lot of consequentialist arguments since this is a philosophical you're attempting to relate law legal matters mm-hmm. with philosophy mm-hmm. um, I would think it's important to always remember, and I I appreciate your calls for um, calming passions, because once the the door is open, that's how discourse should happen. But there is a difference between street epistemology and academic epistemology. Mm -hmm. And passions are there for a reason, to force movement, to force change. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be just necessarily dismissed out of hand. Mm -hmm. And what is the duty then of a liberal society to increase access and not restrict access for citizens within the public sphere, given that people do have deeply held religious beliefs, and that's fine, but within when they are operating within the public sphere, mm-hmm. they have a duty to not exclude people from that, mm-hmm. which is not a religious sphere.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it really is basically a question about where one draws the lines of the public sphere. And the proposal that, uh, just take the proposal to you can discriminate if you openly announce. It uh, creates a little island where the ordinary easement of public access is denied in uh, these little islands, uh, which I just don't think there are going to be that many of them. So I don't think that that calls into question full citizenship and membership in the community as it would if you had to worry about discrimination anytime you walked into a store. Uh, and the stress of worrying about that is one of the things that anti-discrimination law aims to prevent. So. Uh, So I very much appreciate that, and I'm trying to come up with a proposal that uh, accommodates that. People right now, public accommodate, you are in the public sphere. That is a property right. That does mean that uh, people have a kind of easement to walk in without being discriminated against, uh, and I'm aiming to preserve that.
5: Hi, my name is Bill, and I'm just a visitor to campus for the day who happened upon this lecture, and so here we are. (laughs) Um, Given, I guess, that this is a constitutional studies program, one wonders about the sort of fundamental character of the values that are at stake not only from a legal or constitutional perspective, but also perhaps from the philosophical perspective that underlies the basis for the construction of the Bill of Rights in our Constitution. Mm -hmm. So we have free exercise and free speech as fundamental constitutional values, and then we have the expression of a political view and a statutory framework that would seem to be less fundamental. And from a philosophical standpoint, this idea of pluralism, both political pluralism and religious pluralism, also seems to underlie the fundamental structure of the the articles of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And so the question really is, should we be begrudging about an exemption for an expression of religious belief, the authenticity of which is not in question? I think you, you, quite acknowledge that the authenticity of the objectives is, is authentic and closely connected to the theology of their religion. Mm-hmm. Um, so, And I do agree that much of the assessments seem to be consequentialist calculation, only a few... Uh, I don't want to hurt you as long as we win, Mm -hmm. rather than a sort of a principled view that what's at stake here are fundamental values Mm -hmm. against those of the expression of the majority.
2: Well, you could adopt a rule that says if you are sincerely religious, that's the end, that there is no state interest that can override (laughs) your sincere religious conviction. But, so that would mean, it'd be good news for the Aztecs. Uh, you know, anyone who, for a religious reason, wants to hurt other people, if they've got a sincere religious reason to doing it, do it, you'd yield to that. Uh, that's why the court, uh, the law has never adopted that view, but it's always asked, well, is there a state interest that justifies this burden on religion? And then we have to get into the weeds of the state interest and figure out, is the state interest of sufficient magnitude? So then you have to do what I didn't really do at any length here, think about what are we trying to accomplish with anti-discrimination law? Under what context is it compelling? To, in what, to what extent can it be adjusted without defeating the purposes of the law? I just don't think there's any way to get around that.
0: Please join me in thanking Professor Coppen. Thank you. This has been great. Yeah.